welcome to the Line Break Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Corlew, and with me as always is my co-host, Bob Sakura. Hey there. Hey, hey. Uh, so this week, there's uh, there's no real topic. Um, we're <laughs> going to do this every so often. The topic is just kind of, hey, what have you been reading this week? <laughs> the primary goal of this podcast is to read y'all some poems. So that's all we're really doing this episode. Bob pointed out that uh, we both settled on some uh, pretty funny poems that nevertheless get into heavy stuff. So just in case you were worrying about us uh, not being on brand, we are being on brand. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Bob, uh, I don't have like a question for you. Uh, You you lived through the last week, I assume. (laughs) (laughs) I did. I think... Maybe to to throw a question at you to turn things on their head a little bit. Oh my goodness! Um, because yeah, you you threw this uh, broad generic "what are you reading" category, and I still like stopped and looked through a ton of different things. What am I reading? With quotes around that. Oh um, yeah, I'm always reading like three books at the same right. time. Yeah. So I was gonna, I was just gonna say how how would you describe your regular reading habit? Okay, so um, I am. I am not as good a reader as I want to be. Uh, I, uh, I, I, I've always been kind of a three or four books at the same time, kind of pick them up and put them down thing kind of guy. It is, I always hold myself to the standard of like how much I was reading in college, which is unrealistic. Like in college, you're, you're, if you're an English major, your job is to read basically. <laughs> so I'm like, if I'm not getting through a book a week, I'm failing uh, always. Right. <laughs> um, so I always try to have like, I have like a, a, book of poems a book of short stories and then a longer book like a novel or a or a book of nonfiction that i'm that i'm trying to get through but it's tough because i am a full-time dad so i'm constantly you know watching the kid and trying to read like around that and then when he's asleep i'm either you know that's when i'm getting my work done or my writing done and, or or hanging out with my wife because that is an important thing to me <laughs> So, so yeah, I don't, I don't read as well as I would like to, but I, I, I like to think I read a little bit of a lot of things constantly. And my favorite things to read right now are books of short stories with a mix of flash fiction and longer fiction. Friend of the program, Chloe Ann Clark, her book, uh, Collective Gravities, I've been really into lately because there are tons and tons of like two to four page stories that I can reasonably watch while I let my kid run around. <laughs> or reasonably watch, reasonably read while I let my kid run around. And then like longer stories that I can like read when, when he's asleep kind of thing. Um, and same, same with poems. Like, you know, I can, I can like devour like two or three poems, uh, you know, without worrying that the, the baby's going to like climb on the dining room table and fall off of it or something. And then I can like, uh, you know, like read a longer poem when he goes to sleep. So yeah, that's that's kind of my reading habits. It's a, it's a little bit disjointed. Um, I have not finished a very long book in a very long time, right. but um, uh, make the best of what you got when you uh, you got a full time parent. You know, that's fair. I think you bring up the the important question: um, is the residual just kind of after uh, aftermath of being an English major, just living in constant guilt that you're not reading enough? because i very much agree with that thank you i hope that's a universal experience because otherwise i'm going to feel just real bad um yeah you know like i i would have semesters where i took like four literature classes uh and i would i barely skipped readings man like i know a lot of people are just like oh yeah i just like spark noted it or whatever like i barely skipped readings right um i tried to read everything and and i i think i would give myself about like an 80 or 85% success rate on like reading a book a week for each class, four classes a semester. (laughs) That's nuts to me. Oh my gosh. um, Well, maybe not a whole book, like maybe like a book and like a week's worth of poetry assignments, a week's worth of short story assignments, like critical assignments. You you, you get it, but for sure. I mean, I think I only had one semester of undergrad where I had four English class. And I think even that one, I was probably taking a workshop for one of them. So it wasn't as much reading. Um, but yeah, that kicked my ass. The, the, the closer one, and I do think it's even less reading than you're talking about, but just when I was in grad school, I think I very foolishly, I really enjoyed both classes, but it just I, funny thinking led me to do this, but I took two literature classes during my MFA that were primarily reading novels. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and very much was that thing, yeah, book a week plus theory plus whatever I was doing in my other classes. Right. On top of writing, like, too. Right, right. Yeah. Both times I think those were in the fall. And just, I would finish that class and I'd be like, I'm not going to read a novel for another year. Screw you. Yeah. yeah. done with that experience. As a person who writes novels, I get it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I would add, just on my end, um, that my reading habits are also really disjointed and I feel like very much comes in fits and starts. Is that the expression? Um, Yeah. Yeah. Fits and starts. uh, where, uh, yeah, sometimes I'm just, like, so into it, and I'm actually moving through four or five books at once. I used to say, like, right now, on, next to me, I have um, a book of short stories. I have, like, four books of poems, and I'm like, man, it's been, like, six to eight weeks that I've been working on, like, each one of, like, all of these things. Sure, you know, like, sure. It, it's not moving. Um, I will say, though, like, with fiction, I really do enjoy going slowly through it. And uh, there's moments where you're like, it becomes a page turn and you got to do it. But, um, right. Yeah. Like I've had, this is a Garth Greenwell short stories and I'm just taking my time and I love that. Um, yeah. yeah. But yeah, for whatever reason, like you're saying the last couple of days I've had that voice in my head being like, you are not reading enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's uh, you know what I also find really good for this thing that we're talking about is, um, anthologies if you get a good anthology mm-hmm. that you trust um because right. there's there's no pressure to read an anthology cover to cover right um you can just pick it up and be like let me try this author out or i like this author but i haven't read this thing or i haven't read right. this one in a long time okay. kind of thing um the uh, the fear i always have with anthologies is like what if i pick up an anthology that sucks like what if i just <laughs> what if i i bought it because i like like two authors in here and those are the only two stories or poems i like in the right. entire anthology <laughs> but yeah i do that like i pick up the um the breakbeat poets anthologies are classics the uh poems for the millennium anthologies are are good mm-hmm. for me and the um couple of short story anthologies there's an anthology and i'm gonna blank on the editor's names but it's called tiny crimes and it's mm. a book of flash fiction that's like a that's that's crime fiction that's really good um and the anchor book of new american short stories is a it's a really good one um that i can just like pull off the shelf and grab you know a right. poem or a short story and just be right. you know um that casualness i think is important too and again i think something that being an english major pushes you away from yeah. Um, I was just thinking as you said that, um, I know many people and like poets, so like literary people, um, who say they feel really comfortable just jumping around in a poetry book. And I do not feel that way at all. I want to read a person's collection from front to back. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even knowing that like sometimes that feels uh that that it slows me down. It feels counterproductive to do it that way. Um, right. But that gut feeling is there so i'm always afraid that um the author structured a book in a certain way and i'm missing something by jumping jumping around yep um or also i mean really simply too just that i will miss something if i don't go straight through sure you know yeah yeah i'm literally checking them off the table of contents i don't know i will say simply by virtue of them being shorter and this goes back to the whole reading while parenting thing um i'm more likely to read a collection of poetry all the way through um, because I can just stop and start with a bunch of poems. Right. Uh, whereas like, um, short stories, like I, I will jump around, like I was referencing Chloe's book, Collective Gravities and I'm jumping around and I'm noticing, um, like recurrent themes. Like she very mm-hmm. clearly structured this manuscript and like wrote this manuscript in a, um, a way that is not just a collection of short stories. It is a cohesive, like, um, group of thoughts, like not like, I don't, I don't to my knowledge, there aren't overlapping characters or anything like that, but um, there are a lot of themes she comes back to, a lot of imagery she comes back to, and I feel like I feel a little bit of a nagging feeling, like maybe I'm doing the book a disservice by not reading it all the way through, but I also feel like I am getting like this, like uh, it's called collective gravities. There's a lot of space imagery. I feel like I'm like swirling like the Milky Way just around like all of this stuff she's getting at. Yeah. Um, so it's it's kind of a fun experience, um, but I'm also worried I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so so much unnecessary anxiety. <laughs> I know, I know. For reading a, a book, reading a right. book. 
we're like the last two people on earth who read books. <laughs> uh, I just, I just uh, got my, I, I cannot, because the libraries are all not physically open, I couldn't get a, an actual card, but I just became a Kansas City library card carrier today. Nice. Virtually. Uh, and uh, so I am going to go pick up some books later in the week. Um, this is on my mind. Yeah. Um, Want to do some more reading. As our segue, um, Ooh. I know, uh, I don't, I've never met uh, the, the poet that um, I chose today. Um, we've worked together uh, as editors um, for a, a brief time, but it was, I was really grateful to have him on the team. Um, and I know he is one of the most prolific readers I can think of. Mm. If, if, if what he's posting on Twitter is accurate, um, <laughs> He's reading all the time, always picking up new books, um, also writing at a prolific pace. Yeah. Um, I'm talking about the poet Ariel Francisco, um, and I deeply, deeply admire um, both his reading habits um, and how much you can tell, you can tell from the poems that it's part of the practice, um, that daily event, have an idea, let's turn it into a poem, you know? Sure, um, yeah. Like this one that I'm going to read. Hey! <laughs> um, it's called Thoughts While Taking Out the Trash. And very much I feel like he does this more than any other contemporary poet than I can think of um, that turns... Is the word I'm looking for quotidian? Is that is that how you say it? I think it's quotidian, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah, just the day-to-day things and can jump into the space of poetry um, you know, and something like this, thoughts while doing this or poet on this. He does a lot of them, um, poem while reading whoever. Um, yeah. And I admire that a lot. Yeah, definitely. Thoughts while taking out the trash. I recall reading somewhere how styrofoam will outlive us all. And that there's an island twice the size of Texas swirling into shape out in the Pacific made up of all the garbage and debris that just won't break down. Much like how planets are formed, space shit spinning in the universe's darkness, drawing each other in until a gobbled sphere begins to emerge. Globed sphere. It's a continent no one wanted to discover. No enthusiastic land ho No landmarks named for kings, no bays or beaches named after its founders, no flags planted to declare it for the motherland. I wonder if it's dense enough to walk on or if I would sink right through like thin ice. I try to imagine the smell and shudder. The stench of my apartment's dumpster alone makes my face screw up like a hermit crab, retreating into a too small shell. And I think that twice, Texas-sized floating trash island that's still growing and will outlast humanity is perhaps the only place I know of that's maybe worse than Florida. Yeah. I I tripped up on myself reading there a couple times. Uh, Oh, that happens to the best of us. I guess so. Take take some pride in the reading a poem out loud. Ugh. Ah. Should have practiced some more today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I I'm not familiar with uh, Ariel's uh, work, but um, this this poem rules. And the um, yeah, what you what you were talking about with the, uh, the the quotidian thing of like thoughts while taking out the trash. It's it is one of those poems where like the kind of simplified language is super effective. It mm-hmm. sounds it almost sounds surrealist if you don't know anything about pollution or climate change. Like there's like someone reading this in a, someone reading this in like 1960 would be like an Island twice the size of Texas swirling in a shape out in the Pacific made up of all the garbage and a breeze. How Lovecraftian. <laughs> but it's real. It's, it's, it's real. And you know, like we were talking about with uh, Jose Olivares' poem last week. Um, why make that sound pretty, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah, just just like use the use the thoughts you have while taking out the trash to tackle climate change. Um, <laughs> and uh, but that said, there's still like there's 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 still a bunch of like great imagery here, like the explorer not wanting to shout land ho or plant a flag. Right. Like there's like an immediate like like kind of like cartoonish like like elementary school textbook like 
<laughs> Cortez planting a flag in, right. in Mexico kind of thing. Um, and the, uh, the dumpster stench making the speaker's face screw up like a hermit crab retreating okay. in a too small shell. Um, and the too small shell like immediately leads right back into the two big trash islands. It's just, it's masterful work, but it, it sounds so simple and plain, you know, when, right. you, when you read yeah. it. Yeah. Um, uh, this, I think you goes back to, um, a name we haven't said recently, <laughs> that, that Frank O'Hara thing. Of, oh, uh, drink. <laughs> um, of, of when the poem like looks, there's some feeling of like, oh, this is easy. You yeah. know, not at all. It's actually, yeah, like the, the, the craft in here, um, upon a little closer inspection, is, is totally there. Yeah. Um, like you're saying, I love uh, that sense of, like, I guess, movement and scope. Mm-hmm. Uh, of starting with, you know, the title of Thoughts While Taking Out the Trash, which I, even that is, you know, pretty evocative of a thing that we're all familiar with and that sucks for everyone. Yes, um, yeah. To, yeah, thoughts in the head of, I recall reading somewhere about the Texas, uh, the island that's twice the size of Texas. And yeah, you have this, then this visual out in the Pacific Ocean of giant trash island. But because of the metaphor, like how planets are formed, spaceship spinning. It's all of a sudden now I'm in space. Right. Um, and, then and you're thinking about gravity because right. things spin because of gravity. Those, uh, that trash is like connecting to itself because of like gravity and tides and currents and stuff. <laughs> Like you're thinking about the laws of science. Now. Right. Um, to that, you pointed out already, but that wonderful, no enthusiastic land ho, no landmarks named for kings. Um, now I'm thinking about colonialism. Right. Um, you know, as you said, we're already thinking about climate change. Um, it just, yeah, it just keeps growing outwards um, into all of the, the things that could come through your mind um, and I think things that I hope should come through your mind when you're taking out the trap, as we add to the Texas-sized island of garbage, but then somehow comes and shrinks back into the hermit crab. It's really weird. It, screw up, you know, is such a common phrase, um, but the way it's working in the sentence there, my face screw up like a hermit crab, I don't know, works really freaking well. Yeah, um, yeah. And then... Uh, and then it comes back to disliking Florida. <laughs> it's an excellent joke to end the poem. It's so great. <laughs> I know he lived in Florida um, for at least some period of time. I, I guess I want to shout out to any theoretical Florida listeners that I don't actually have any beef with Florida. I've never been to Florida. All I have is hearsay. <laughs> I lived in Florida for a little bit. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, I was... From age one to three, I lived in Florida, but my grandparents yeah. remained there because my, my grandfather taught at the University of Florida. The link you sent me to this poem is uh, from Crab Fat Magazine. His bio says, he lives in South Florida, parentheses, for now. <laughs> <laughs> I can confirm he has escaped Florida. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> good for him. He's, he seemed pretty upset about it. <laughs> Well, so this is from his second collection. It's called A Sinking Ship is Still a Ship, which is very Chris Corlew core. <laughs> That's a great title. I'm going to have to, I'm going to buy it as soon as we finish the podcast. <laughs> um, it's, it's a lot about Florida. Um, and actually it's put out by a Florida press, Borough Press. Um, and also just like shouting, shouting out the press, shouting out Ariel. Um, it's, it's in this edition. Um, it's, it's in a bilingual edition. So you get, each poem in Spanish and English. Oh, sick. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's super cool. I'm so pumped to press would do that. Um, yeah. Because Ariel translates. Um, someone else, Jose Nicolas Cabrera Schneider, Schneider translated these. Um, that's just super, uh, I'm just stoked about that. Yeah, I was wondering yeah, that's I got, awesome. Like, got the book in the mail. Um, it like says in this parallel translation edition, like big letters in the back. Um I was like, I don't remember ordering this version. I think it's the only version, but I was like, it was cool. Yeah. <laughs> nice. My biggest Florida thing is as a California person who moved to the Midwest. So one, I already have this, I have a skewed perception of reality. I understand that. Sure. Sure. Person, I don't understand how the rest of the world works. I've been learning ever since I moved away. Um, but it still kind of blows my mind just, how many people I met who grew up in the Chicago suburbs whose family would road trip to Florida on a yearly basis. Oh God. 
That sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> so where I grew up in Tennessee, uh, I grew up just outside of Nashville, and my grandparents lived in Gainesville, where the University of Florida is. Uh, Central Florida, not Beach, Florida. Um, Gator, Mosquito, and Fire Ant, Florida. I want to say that was somewhere along the lines of eight to 10 hours in the car. Yeah, so eight hours is about as much as I can stomach in a car. And that was just to get to like Central Florida to see my grandparents. Um, there was a tangerine plant, a uh, tangerine tree out back. We would pick fresh tangerines, eat that. That was nice. Right. Um, yeah, to go. And I've been all over in Florida too. Like I've been everywhere except for like the farthest south reaches. <laughs> it is. Um, there are beaches. Beaches are nice. I like the beach. Right. right. Um, yeah. It's a it's a it's a bleak place sometimes. <laughs> and to imagine driving from let's just say Chicago, Chicago to my 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 parents' house in Tennessee. Chicago to my parents' house is eight hours. Tack on another eight hours just to get to Central Florida or anywhere in Florida. Right. Why would you do that? <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> you are I mean, spoiled by living in California, though. Right. And, and also, it's, neither one of us, uh, you know, yeah, you having grown up in Tennessee, me growing in California, uh, we don't quite understand. And we, we both have lived in the Midwest long enough, but we get it. The winters are terrible. But, I, 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 you know, there's yeah. probably something to be said about doing another 20 years of this. Um, yeah, you know, <laughs> how, how are you going to feel then? Right, right. I um, yeah. I feel like uh, I feel like I, I uh, you know, unless something really bad happens, I, I'm just gonna pony up for uh, for for airline fees. <laughs> um. I was thinking too about the ending of this. Oh no, I was thinking about two things. One, the poem making us think about global warming, me thinking about California, um, and Florida too. You know, heat stuff. Um, my parents just a uh, couple days ago this weekend was like the warmest day on record period ever. Um, wow. In their part of uh, LA and uh, you know, the whole state's on fire. It's just like one of those things where it's just like, I keep thinking of like, is, is California just not going to be a place where you can live, you know, like eventually, like it's. Yeah. It's like, I think certainly the same can be said like about, uh, you know, like Arizona where it's just, it's getting so hot in the summers and. Right. Right. Totally freaks me out. Um, it's, it's one of those things that it's unconsciousable that like more things haven't been done because like we're, we're going to get into it, in it, <laughs> uh, a huge tangent, but like, yeah, like this, this poem, uh, this podcast where we're talking about Florida and California it, there's a possibility in 20 years that everyone will be like, what, what were you guys talking about? <laughs> you know, like, well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, the, 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 the Texas-sized trash island might be a helpful metaphor here. You know, and just, Yeah, Texas is an impossibly big state. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but just like everything in terms of climate change and taking care of the planet um, is this like, well, one, the, the argument's so dumb and wrapped up in just awfulness, denying reality. But, you know, yeah, it's that, that, that so much of it for so long has been like, oh, we can't really notice it. You don't feel it on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, and then one day the, the trash island is so big, you know. Right. And one day your entire state's on fire, you know, and one day uh, somewhere right. underwater, uh, you know, it's right. like... Beaches are eroding in Chicago. I saw a picture uh, from uh, Robert Lorazel, I think I'm pronouncing his name right. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a reporter at uh, WBUZ in Chicago. Uh, just took a picture of Montrose Harbor of, like, trees just washing away into Lake Michigan the other day. Um, and then there's a beach uh, up by Loyola, the Thorndale Beach, where the uh, synagogue is. Yeah. Yeah, um, that, uh, like used to be able to climb out onto those rocks, and now they are just, like, rocks in the middle of the lake. No! Now, now they're rocks that you have to wade into. Yeah, I'll send you a picture. It's it's um, it's bleak. Um, but you used to be able to, like, just walk out to them. Um, right. right. Uh, now, of course, Chicago, Chicago's a little different because those are man-made beaches, but, like, <laughs> the, the principle 
holds. Sure. Uh, yeah, the poem just, it, it makes you think about all that because of, like, you know, thoughts you have while taking out the trash. Especially since my kid was born, like, just super conscious of how much trash I generate. Like, we, uh, we cloth diaper, uh, so we're not, like, throwing out diapers all the time, but... Like ever since the baby was born, you just you just use a lot more stuff, right? And it's a little bit better now. But for a while there, I was taking out the trash once a day, um, and just like thinking about, oh my god, I'm generating so much trash, but I can't be thinking about the planet right now. I have a an infant right. to keep alive, right. you know, um, and uh, uh, just thinking about like this all has to go somewhere what else can you do? And, you know, we recycle as much as we can. We, uh, uh, you know, we just started composting and like you, you do all the individual things you can, but, uh, as this poem kind of gestures towards individual actions only go so far, like it's thoughts while you are taking out your trash, there's a twice the size of Texas garbage (laughs) Island in the Pacific ocean. And like, shouldn't someone with a little bit more power of, than you, as you're taking out your trash, be doing something to take care of this. You would think. Um, you would think. But, I, I'm not going. But there to... are there there are shareholders at stake, Bob. <laughs> of course there are. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to let myself go down this tangent, um, but know that I could go on a rant um, about the uh, garbage the way garbage is done here in Kansas city. Um, Oh boy. I can't wait to hear this later. (laughs) The the quick and dirty version. There's no trash can for me to take the trash out to. Um, Oh no. Once a week I get to leave a bag out on the curb. So, uh, (laughs) um, but what I wanted to end our conversation with this on was how much I love. Again, this, this poem has a scope and this movement, um, and, you know, and yeah, and coming from that place of thoughts while I'm taking out the trash, you're getting this quiet moment and your brain rambles off into all of these things um, and all that movement. Um, but I also love, um, and this again, this is definitely a theme with poems I like, but that it comes back to the intensity of feeling when you're living somewhere that you hate and you don't want to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Even as all of those thoughts come there, it several spirals back to me fuck, why am I in Florida right now? <laughs> I think that's great. Yeah, definitely. It, um, it earns its joke at the end. Um, Absolutely. I feel like Florida jokes are easy, but uh, this this poem earns it for sure. <laughs> um. Oh, my. All right. Um, so we've taken out the trash. Um, how do we leave a party? <laughs> Usually, I leave parties by letting someone else take out the trash. <laughs> or, more frequently, now that I have a kid, I'm hosting the party, and I'm the one who has to take out the trash. You start um, taking out the trash when you want people to leave. Right. Oh, they, they, there you go. There you go. So I have to walk through like a, a yard and a garage and stuff. And so. All right. Uh, this is from Adrian Sobel, um, called How to Leave a Party. One. I've been ghosting since the first grave. Two, I found this unopened instructional videotape on how to do some pretty killer karate moves. If this is how we fall in love, so be it. I'm ready to be kicked in the face with a beam of light. Three, the Gnostics had a word for every word describing our universe's constant state of sexual arousal. It appears on a list of new exhibits at the Museum of Everyday Life. Four. I have a vast network now. I know people in Cincinnati. Why the dead grass grows on their lawns. I once had a kiss so bad I kept coming back to it. Drove half the country down some backshit road, not on any map, to have it put new cracks in my teeth. Five. My doctor tells me to have a goal, to be limber. I'm trying to touch my toes in the future. I'm told there will be dancing. Yes, a little dancing. Just enough to lift up the sky. Six. A man on a tightrope has died, but not like you might expect. In his pocket, 
He had a new kind of poem. It's the first of its kind. The first with feathers. The first with hollow bones. You're thinking bird. Don't. Seven. Open threat. I'll sing hallelujah at karaoke. I'll sing the lost verses too. Forgive me, Leonard. You were not meant in my poem to be a weapon. Eight. I hold a knife. The music it plays across the seafloor is beautiful. I love its song. I've learned almost half the words. When I'm done, you can bury me. I want to see what's underneath you all the time. Nine. Listen, we have two instincts, killer and basic. Dress appropriately. Take account of your limbs, where you leave them each night in the next room. As feathers rain around your bed, an unspeakable horror washes its feet. 10. I want to tell you about the curtain. I've cut eyes ho eye holes into and stood behind. I was never a painter, but I could tell you were out of proportion from this angle. The floor doesn't appear to be flooding. This isn't important, but the coffee table has floated away. 11. I grow bored. I construct an elaborate social experiment. I pretend to be one whole person. I don't tell anyone. No one knows. I stand in the rain and think, what if this were blood? I look up to see, today it is. Ooh wee. Where to start? It's a poem. <laughs> Where to start? Oh, um, uh, since you asked where to start, my notes say, can I start at the end? <laughs> <laughs> when you put it that way, yes. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be the one, since, since you asked the question at the top, I'm going to be the one to bring it back to form. Um, I think there's an Ars Poetica here at the okay. end. Um, and I haven't talked to Adrian about this, so maybe he'll listen to this podcast and then stop being my friend, but I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> that last stanza, I grow bored. I can construct right. an elaborate social experiment. I pretend to be one whole person. I don't tell anyone. No one knows. I feel super important to this poem and to this collection a little bit. Okay. Uh, the, the collection is called The Life of the Party is Harder to Find Until You're the Last One Around. And there's a lot of party imagery. There's a lot of leaving parties. There's a lot of saying goodbye. There's a lot of not fitting in. There's a lot of the speaker feeling uncomfortable around people. Mm -hmm. And what I love about that stanza so much is instead of saying, I don't fit in like some disaffected Gen Xer, the speaker is like, I am pretending to be a person and no one knows I'm pretending to be a person. And I, I love that idea, like, especially stripped of like the sci-fi kind of like they live or the thing context, like <laughs> of just like, there's so much in this poem that is, there are like these little twists and turns of language and phrase and line breaks of things that go places you didn't expect. And it somehow to me always feels authentic to the speaker. <laughs> and that little bit at the end makes the speaker feel like alien or outsider to everything that's happening around. Right. Them. Right. Um, that's what really jumped out to me at this poem. Like, and you know, aside from just like, I do love all those little twists and turns and stuff. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's a delight to read, but that, that sort of like gave a, um, that, that last stanza gave me like a key to reading it almost. I agree. I really, really like that. Um, Cause I, I also latched onto that part. Um, and I think that's interesting thinking about it. Of, yeah. What, what if stop, take the, just that little section and then kind of rethink everything in the poem, rethink everything in the book. Um, mm -hmm. That's really interesting to me. And, and funny, there's something I think, that Adrian does here and throughout where the like surreal, the weird imagery, I think it's all connected. I think it's doing work together, but like almost distracts me from like the very, like the heart of it, you know, because mm -hmm. right after that is this, I stand in the rain and think, what if there were blood, what if there were blood? I look up to see today it is. And, and there's a intensity to that. And there's the image to that, you know, of, 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 whoa, what? sky yeah blood um but like yeah that had, right before that um had become this very profound personal kind of statement um i don't have a <laughs> I really sure 
Well, you're, uh, you're you're getting at something else that I that I noted. Um, have you been watching Lovecraft Country, uh, I have HBO not. show? You're the fourth person to ask me in like three. Oh man, days. it's uh it's really good, and I don't want to I don't want to co opt or, or gentrify Lovecraft Country because it is a show um, very much rooted in uh, the Black American experience. But um, there's an undercurrent with each episode that this horrifying and fantastical stuff is happening to black Americans in the Jim Crow, not even South Jim Crow era. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause a lot of it takes place in Chicago. A lot of it takes place in Boston. Hey, I'm brand for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, there, there is a lot of like uh, just kind of horror imagery in this poem. Um, there's the raining blood. There is in the, the number nine section feathers rain around your bed. An unspeakable horror washes its feet. Right. Um, there's yeah. another well, the one. That yeah, there's a flood in the next section. There's one earlier. You've got um, the, uh, the poem in his pocket. It's first of its kind, the first of feathers. You're thinking bird, don't. Um, yeah. There's a mention of the Gnostics, um, yeah. uh, a uh, early Christian sect that was labeled heretical and uh, uh, had these kind of wild cosmic views that uh, the early church just didn't want to uh, want to get behind. Right. Um, and it's... They're talking about the universe's constant state of sexual arousal. Um, there is a lot of like just horror happening. And the reason I connect that to Lovecraft Country is because each episode has like just something horrific happen. And then the next episode, and we're four episodes in as we record this, and it's not, this is beginning to break down a little bit, but sometimes like episode to episode, the horror thing happens and then characters are forced to go back to their daily lives, mm-hmm. which uh, in the context of the show, like explains, like um, it's kind of a, a, I read it as a vehicle to explain like just how like black Americans see the world differently than white Americans. And, and you're as a black American, you're just expected to sort of put up with this, like just unrelenting constant universe of horror, just like raining down on you. And you're just ex- supposed to just continue going on your daily life. That is happening to a, far lesser extent in this poem where it's just like the speaker is like not, not fitting in with the world around them. And, um, you know, doing like a, like I talked about, like trying to make sense of it and trying to pretend to be a person kind of thing. Right. Right. As Adrian is a friend of the program and friend in real life. Um, it's, uh, yeah. It's real a, actual drinking buddy. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, it's a weird one to, to read a book and to read poems by someone, um, I've had a beer with on multiple occasions because it's hard to separate the real person voice from the poem voice. Um, obviously there's a lot in there, but I, I guess it, it really manifests for me that I can hear Adrian's voice reading this poem. Um, yeah. and Adrian does a great deadpan. He's got a dry sense of humor yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's all here in the poem. So there's this like echoing effect. Yeah, and it's 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 tough for me too, and this is why I, I I've been reading this book over and over again before talking to him about it because I'm trying to separate like uh, Adrian and I were really close writing friends in in college and close friends, but you know close like writing friends. We right. had this weird thing for a couple of semesters where we took fiction workshops, and then like before we turned in the stories, we like hand them off to each other to read before we like turn in the final drafts or whatever, and like. For, like, two semesters, six short stories worth, we basically wrote, like, not the same short story, but the, the, a short story that was trying to do the exact same thing. Um, we are just, like, you know, as we were kind of incubating in, in college workshops, we were, we were, we were very, like, um, on the same wavelength kind of sure. thing. So I've been trying to, as I'm reading this book, like, trying to separate that out and um, read it on its own merits and not read it as like, that's, that's, that's my friend. Yep. I, I, I know how to read this. Like I've, I've read this in workshop before because <laughs> obviously he's gotten a lot better since then. Um, and uh, uh, he's grown and, and, and stuff, but like, um, uh, yeah, it is, it is weird to separate out, but this, this poem, the first time I read it, like stopped me in my tracks and I was right. like, Oh yeah, this right. is, this is a, uh, this is a, this is a banger. <laughs> Um, one thing uh, that this poem brings to my mind, I guess the other poem did too, as we talked about with the ending. Uh, and I, I also I literally over beer had a conversation with Adrian about this. Um, but he it has um, 
an awareness that he brings to the forefront a lot of, of jokes in poetry and the relationship um, between jokes and poetry. There's several poems, I believe, in here that are called, like, Joke About Something. Um, yeah, a joke. I have a joke I'm working on. Or there it is. I have a joke yeah. I'm working on. Um, which, to, uh, yeah, to me, I love the conversation. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I have a complex relationship with jokes and poems um, yeah. and, and how intermingled I ever want them to be. I don't know what I have to say about this. I just, I just, again, the thought, I guess, yeah, for this poem that leads um, with very much a jokey section. Um, yeah. I've been ghosting since the first grave. Yeah. Like, like Starts we were saying. <laughs> um, that's what I love about the work of, of, of what this is doing is, is yeah, is starting from those jokey turn of phrase kind of moments um, and continuing with the metaphor, um, digging into, um, uh, maybe to connect the poems, uh, digging into the shit. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I find it so interesting, the title, this poem, other things that, yeah, Adrian's fascination um, with parties and being uncomfortable at parties and wanting to leave parties and leaving parties. Um because that's very familiar to me. That resonates with me for sure. Yeah, um, it it definitely hits hard. Yeah, right. I mean, and also as someone like I'm very social. I do crave. Like, there's so often where it's like I want to go to the party, but I also really don't want to be there. Or like I get there and I'm like, shoot, I don't actually have the energy for this. Yeah, um, yeah. And there's a, there's a, there's a line of thought here that I'm just totally not fully communicating, but um. <laughs> In the fourth stanza, he does something like this a few times. Or I guess the second and the fourth. So he has, if he writes, if this is how we fall in love, so be it. I'm ready to be kicked in the face with a beam of light. And then in the fourth one, I once had a kiss so bad I kept coming back to it, drove half the country down, some back shit road, not on any map to have it, put new cracks in my teeth. Um, when he talks about love and romance, and it's, this also goes back to that last stanza you were talking about and pretending to be a person, there's this, like, disaffected acceptance of it. Like, he feels yeah. like not in control over it um, yeah. in a way that I find really interesting and kind of upsetting. Like, yeah. I feel really bad for the speaker. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, the uh, when I when I read the I once had a kiss so bad I drove halfway across the country for it. I actually thought of thought of your chapbook. Your um, <laughs> of, uh, I was talking about love. You were talking about geography. I was like, this is this is the line that reminds me of Bob driving across the country for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, no, that that is interesting. Of like being a, a passive acceptor of the things that are happening. Mm. Um, happening to the speaker uh is um yeah there's something there um yeah i, I, I don't know i don't know exactly how to connect it except for to circle back to what i've already said about the pretending to be a person but that that feels boring it doesn't that doesn't feel appropriate but uh um yeah that's an interesting point yeah <laughs> this is the, the the part in the program where we break down a little bit and say yeah i the poems i like this poem i don't I, <laughs> I know the poem's working because I can't explain it. Right. Which, you know, the poem is that which resists paraphrase. So right. Anyway. Yeah, no. If if I could tie it up in a bow and tell you exactly why it's doing what it's doing to me, um, yeah, I want to be able to gesture towards that. But uh, I yeah. certainly, I, I never want to fully tie it up. Yeah. Um, yeah, to go back to your jokes thing, I think Adrian is really good at um, telling jokes and poems. I think jokes and poems are uh, important. I think, you know, sometimes like uh, sometimes people are very good at telling jokes and poems in a way that is funny to non-poets. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people are very good at telling jokes and poems that is a way that is only funny to poets. <laughs> and sometimes people just tell jokes and poems that suck. <laughs> um, and it's a, it's very tricky. And I know that I am not good at it. Right, um, but Adrian is good at it. I fully agree. There's a a line of when I'm okay with it and when I'm not happy about it that I don't quite understand. It's um, a it's 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 porn. You know it when you see it. <laughs> <laughs> but I have had that conversation with him, and I know that he. Uh, we'll talk more about uh, 
friend of the program, former roommate August Smith, and his relationship between jokes and poems someday. Oh, um, yeah. yeah he, he's got a lot to talk about that, too. Um, yeah. It, it's going to take it right now. It's going to take us further away. <laughs> right. We've already, on our, on our short, lighthearted podcast, we've already gone very long. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, so since we've uh, since we've reached the uh, the breakdown point, the uh, if you ever played uh, NBA Street, what you might call the game breaker in uh, this <laughs> podcast, uh, let's get to an NBA question. Um, so this is hyper specific and based on um, recent events, but I would like to ask you, Bob, has there ever been a player that the Clippers had who annoyed you? You really just couldn't like, but then when they let him go, you were pissed off. I'm going to go first um, because the Bulls used to have a guy on their roster who's completely insufferable named Jimmy Butler. (laughs) (laughs) Jimmy Butler is absolutely going off right now. He is pulling a 95 Hakeem to Giannis Antetokounmpo's 95 David Robinson. Um, Just, just, He's going to make Giannis accept his MVP trophy on a Zoom call. And the Bulls traded Jimmy Butler for Zach Levine and Chris Dunn. When was the last time you thought about Chris Dunn? Uh, surprisingly recently because uh, he, he popped up on um, an article. Oh, he tries on defense. Of course you thought about him recently. Well, yeah, yeah. That's what I was going to say. He popped up in these articles about uh, people were you know willing to put him on their like, all-second defensive team you know they were, were getting a deep cut so that was probably a podcast too that i'm thinking about but um mm-hmm. uh yeah i, I think about uh, i because i that was the big thought i was like oh shoot i have never i haven't watched any bulls games in a while and i have never thought about chris dunn as a defender um but I yeah why you, would you do either of those things <laughs> i can tell you very strongly that i would be so upset uh to have zach levine be the return for that um oh my god not a basketball player of confidence in yeah. So for the parameters of my question, Jimmy Butler is someone I respect. I should say up top, I, he, he has said that he doesn't like to talk about this, but he, um, I believe, was uh, kicked out of his house when he was 12 years old uh, by his mom just for no, like, no real reason. So he's had to work very hard to be where he is. And, you know, all respect to Jimmy Butler. I find him really annoying. He is the Mark Wahlberg of the NBA, which is fitting because Mark Wahlberg is his best and probably only friend. Um, he's always talking about how hard he works. But, man, like what's so frustrating about this Heat team is that they're really cool. Um, they have like a lot of really cool players and a really cool system. And they're the Heat. They're the, they're the goddamn Heat, man. They're the fucking Heat. And... The Bulls could have had this if they had a modicum of smarts in the front office. <laughs> but we don't live in the world where the Bulls have smarts in the front office. We live in the world where the Heat have smarts in the front office. And I hate it here. <laughs> so that's my rant oh. about Jimmy Butler being awesome. Um, I love Trey Jimmy Kirby Butler. From... I've always loved Jimmy Butler. I'm so <sighs> thrilled that this is happening. <laughs> uh He's going to seek this podcast out and then, and then come on and just like praise your work and then just eviscerate me. Like he will do that. He will name search himself and do that. That's such a good example. Um, so I'm thinking of a player who has left the Clippers, my team. And I have, I disliked them when they were on the team. I don't have a good parallel for this. It's um, really specific. Well, and it, it, you know, like we're talking about the last decade of Clipper fandom has been like the best. And right. while, you know, and like we traded away and it was a good idea. Chris Paul left and it was like kind of uncomfortable, but it, yeah, the team had run its course and I liked Chris right. Paul before. I, I'm still happy for him now. You know, uh, everyone else who's, who's left, uh, nothing like really great came of it. You know, I was, I was really upset when Elton Brand signed with the 76ers because we were supposed to pair him up with Baron Davis and it's going to be, right. going to be our right. time. Um, but Elton Brand's body broke down and years later, he's the GM of the 76ers and uh, let Jimmy Butler go among other right. things, <laughs> other poor decisions. <laughs> yeah. There wasn't like a, um, 
I guess, yeah, for for a long time of Clippers fandom, you do have to kind of take what you can get. It's like, you're not going to be, like, mad at Sam Cassell for anything. <laughs> um, maybe the closest um, is, is is Lamar Odom was is, is and was one of my absolute favorite players, and it sucked to watch him win championships with the Lakers. I oh, sure. That's a good one. Yeah. So fr- I was happy for him. I was so frustrated um, that that – you know, that's the team you will think of when you think of Lamar Odom. It's got yeah. his wings. Um, and uh, he was my guy. Um, that was when I kind of really, you know, uh, he was drafted in 99, 2000, 2001. It must have been 99. Um, yeah, I think it was. And, you know, I was, after Jordan retired, you know, there was that little period of time where I was yeah. like, what do I do mm-hmm. with basketball? And he totally, right. um, that that those teams, early Clipper teams, you know, that led into Quentin Richardson, Corey McGaddy, Darius Miles, um, yeah, fun yeah. bad teams. Um, but Lamar Odom, uh, yeah, again, who went on to win championships as a power forward. Uh, we were trying to play him as a point guard early on. He was so athletic. He was, uh, yeah. I like to call him LeBron zero point five. Nice. He, he was not the full version, but he was so good. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's actually that's interesting. That that Clippers team now would have just played Elton Brand at center, Lamar at power forward, <laughs> right. Sam Cassell, Corey McGetty, Quentin Richardson. That would have been a good team. Now, um, <sighs> not so much. Um, I, I hope I'm sorry. Lamar is doing well. I, I, you know, after his big spiral out and health problems, I was yeah. We could probably like, end every podcast with "I hope Lamar is doing well." <laughs> like that—that that could be a sign-off. <laughs> I just because uh, I, 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 I think about them more than like you should think about a person. It's like I just like just like hope that guy is okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's 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 so awful, you know, and you know whatever. I don't know about his personal life, whatever. Um, but yeah, you know, he was in the hospital unconscious for like days. And I definitely like went through that thought process. Of, like, oh shit, one of the first basketball players I really loved is going to die. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I hope he's doing well. You know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's, well, that's it for our lighthearted podcast this week. <laughs> we hope the NBA player recovering from a drug addiction and a... Uh, the death of his best friend and a rough family situation is doing well. That's been an episode. (laughs) Our music is produced by Brendan Johnson. Our art is produced by AM Strickland, and we will talk to you guys next week.